We hope you'll be blessed and inspired and challenged and motivated by this fresh word from Christian Heritage Church. Now, church, we can say that we are pro-life, but how many of you know that they're doing the work at Royal Home Ministries? It's one thing to say something, but it's another to put shoe leather to it, to actually carry that out. And so we are just so honored that we've gotten to be a part of that and to give to that ministry. And this past October, Marisol uh, has retired along with her husband who retired as a sergeant in the U.S. Army. And so we honor him and his service. Yes, we love those that have served and honor them. And I could go on and on. There's a lot of amazing successes and um, just accomplishments that Marisol has done in her life. But anyone that knows her, like I know her, would tell you that the biggest success and the biggest accomplishment in her life is her passion and zeal for the Lord. She, her obedience to Christ is such a deep encouragement to me, and I'm honored to call her my friend. So would you, CHC family, give a warm, big welcome to Marisol Martinez. Wow. Whoa, with that introduction. Good job. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God is so good. I bring you greetings, precious church, uh, on behalf of Royal Home Ministries, where I served as their uh, director for two and a half years. And as Amy said, in the month of October, um, my time there came to an end as the acting director. Uh, My husband and I have retired to South Carolina after 21 years of service in the United States Army. Um, And God is just doing wonderful things in our lives. And Royal Home is flourishing because it's not the person that's heading the ministry. It's the person that paid the price for the ministry. And his name is Jesus. So independent of who's there, hallelujah, he stays. Amen. It's a wonderful program. It services and helps young ladies that are in teenage crisis pregnancies, young ladies that have been removed from their home through DSS and placed there with their babies. Um, It's just the most precious, precious opportunity to see life flourish. Um, The girls can stay there to the age of 21. They have life skills. uh, The program has a fully accredited high school. The girls can stay there through their high school years and on to college. Their SAT scores are growing. The girls are learning how to be mothers and the job of the of the person that works at Royal Home of the personnel is to do this we are the Elizabeth to the Mary Yes, amen. We are the Elizabeth to the Mary, to a little girl that's very scared, that has to make a decision, doesn't know what to do, but there is a seasoned woman of God that will love her unconditionally. Because if you remember the story of Mary, we would say yes, but Mary's pregnancy was was planned. What was planned in the heavens, but when the angel told her, she was scared. 
And she ran to a seasoned woman, to a home where she received the love from above. And that's what Royal Home is. The girls will run there, and they're very scared. You know, in my employment there, my youngest mother was 13 years old. And you and I decide, like, that's foreign to us, right? She was 13 years old when she had her baby. She came to us and her baby was three days old, straight from the hospital. And boy, was she scared. She did not know how to hold the baby. There were no mothering skills given to her because there was a lack of a mother in her life. But you know, God knew. And so she ran to Royal Home. And here come all the Elizabeths out the door. And we loved her, and we cried with her, and we held her. Well, for two and a half years, I saw that young lady grow. And she grew in the school to be one of the brightest students that we had in the school. She grew to be one of the most amazing mothers to that baby boy. Well, in the month of December, God opened a door, and a foster family knocked at the door of Royal Home. And they said, we will take her. And we will take the baby. And so as of today, this young lady is an amazing foster home. And she took with her the tools that Royal Home gave her to be just that. And your church has partnered with us financially, prayerfully, and with people that have come to Falcon, North Carolina to see what we're doing. So you're part of that miracle. And today, we celebrate the sanctity of human life in the United States. Churches around the United States, they're having people just like me come and speak and just share a little bit about what Royal Home is doing, and now you know. And I asked the team to put on the screen our Facebook. So if you have your phone, I'm a teacher, and I normally tell my students, put your phones away when I am lecturing. But you have the opportunity to take your phones out while I am lecturing and go and like Royal Home Ministries Facebook. And then you can see what they're doing and how the Lord is growing them. They're also on Instagram, Royal Home Ministries, and on Twitter. And follow them and chime in and pray for them and make it your heart's desire to pray for the young ladies that are coming to Royal Home. And if there is a young lady under the sound of my voice and you're listening to me or a parent and you're going through something and there is a teenage pregnancy and there is a crisis, hold on. Jesus knew before it happened. He's not surprised. He's not surprised. We might, but he's not. And if you need help and you need guidance, the International Pentecostal Holiness Church has said, here we are. We're going to position ourselves not to say that abortion is wrong. Because as believers, we say abortion is wrong. And rightfully so. That's life. From the inception, it's life. But it's not enough to say it's wrong. What do you do about it? We say sin is wrong, and that's why we have churches. Because I can't tell the sinner, you're wrong, and your life is destitute to hell if you don't repent and seek the Lord. Great! Well, give me a place where I can go to seek this God. And that's why we have churches. Amen? Amen. So if I tell a young lady that abortion is wrong, what am I offering her? If I tell the drug addict that drugs are wrong, and he needs to repent, and she needs to repent, what am I going to give her? Well, praise God. You know what? The International Pentecostal Holiness Church gives royal home, and the Assemblies of God gives Team Challenge. This is not about denomination. This is about Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, Amy said something so profound about our friendship. 
And our hearts were knit at a conference um, here in North Carol- in, in Florida, at the Sunshine Conference. I met Amy and her husband and her dad, and it was just the most precious time. And I did not know that almost two years later, I was going to need Amy. You see, you never know what you hear one day, and you're going to need later. So... At the time, I did not know Amy and Mike's testimony. She came to the table and we talked. Never, ever would have imagined their testimony. And then Amy called me and we were just talking a little bit because I opened up my heart to her at at, um, dinner and I said, "I, I have a niece. And my niece was raised in the church. My niece was taught how to love God, how to serve God. She was a daisy. She was a prim. She was a missionette, which is part of the program of children as they grow up. And then the enemy lied to my niece. And for the last 10 years, my niece has been lost in the abyss of drug addiction. How was I supposed to know that manning a table for royal home to speak life for the unborn, I was going to come across someone that was going to speak life to a drug addict? Well, you know, in the month of October, because of Amy and Mike, my niece entered Teen Challenge after 10 years of drug addiction. Yes! Hallelujah! That should be, church, the biggest praise. In a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate the Super Bowl. February 3rd, everything will stop. Walmarts will be empty. And everyone will be seated for the main event. It's my husband's birthday, so I have a huge birthday party at my house. And people will be screaming and they'll be excited over a game. They'll be out of cash because they'll throw this big party, be really upset because their team lost. But we, we that have the Savior of the universe, that we know the outcome of the game because you're here and I'm here because he won. He won. That should be enough to bring you to your feet. He won. Hallelujah. He won. He won. Oh, thank you, Jesus. He won. And because he won, that makes me a winner. Hallelujah. So today I want to talk to you about something near and dear to my heart. And it's about life. And it's funny because we think the sanctity of human life, she's going to speak about abortion and, and life. And yes, we've done those particulars in introducing Royal Home. But I've named today's sermon, Do You Stand for Life? So uh, Friday, we had a huge rally in the D.C. area every year, the March for Life in D.C. Hundreds of thousands of believers march quietly, silently, in terms of nothing physical, just loving God and just marching for life right alongside the Capitol. Thousands of people were there. Royal Home goes every year. And our team was there, led by Donna Jackson and Joey Leggett, who are the, um, he's the CEO of Falcon, and Donna is the now acting director, and they did a phenomenal job. With M25, Gary Bird, who has been here with you before. And then they went on to to, uh, Texas, and they did the same thing. 
leaving. And they marched, just silently saying, this is wrong, this is wrong. So they stood for life. But my question to you this morning is, do you stand for life? Not at a rally, not as we're marching, but do you stand for life? And what does that mean, life? Yes, life in utero, right? Life in the womb. Life in someone who is in sin. We're going to pick them up. But do you stand for life? And what does life really mean in terms of the biblical approach? And I want to read from the book of Luke. And it's something that we've probably heard hundreds and hundreds of times. But you know, when the Lord gave me this, and I, I'm a teacher, remember, that's my, that's my profession. I started dissecting scripture. And I encourage you to do the same. Get in there and look. Look in the Greek and in the Latin. What are these words meaning? And what did he mean in a culture from long ago? So if we can just stand and reverence to God's word. I'm a good old Pentecostal. It's just the way we do things. We're going to go to the book of Luke. And we're going to read Luke, verses 25 to 33. And every time I have the opportunity and the honor to speak God's word, and I'm forever thankful to Pastor Steve and Yvonne for this opportunity. Because when he called me, I said, Pastor, are you sure? And he said, you come and preach God's word. And then he called me and said, my, my father's ill and I won't be there. And, and I said, Pastor, is there anything that my husband and I can do? And he said, you just preach the house down. So this is what we're going to do because Pastor Steve said... But yesterday, as Amy and I were coming from the airport, we passed something on the road, and I don't know if it was a hospital, but it said Good Samaritan. And I said, Amy, remember that. Remember that for tomorrow. So every time I have the opportunity to speak God's word, I ask the Lord kind of to validate, right? Give me a sign. No one has to come and say, so saith the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit, amen? So I, we were driving and I saw it and I said, thank you, Jesus. Good Samaritan, really big on our way from the airport. So we're going to start with verse 25, chapter 10 of Luke. Do you, church... Do I, do we, do you, audience that's watching us online, stand for life? And it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will have life. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Sassy. I would say he was sassy. And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man, and this is where we're going to get into God's word, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead or with little to no life. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, this one at least got a little closer, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. 
But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had come passion. So he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on him oil and wine, and he set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think is the neighbor? Which of these three, church, do you think gave life? Which of these three, church, do you think stood up? For life. Father, we praise your name. This service has been yours and you've been so present since the very beginning. I pray, Lord, under the sound of my voice, Father, that person that has come with hunger, Father, that person that is watching with hunger, that person, Father God, that is hurting, Lord, we're going after him or her, Lord, to introduce life. Bless the rest of us as we hear from you this morning. You may be seated. Do you stand for life? How do you tell the story of the person that has saved your life? <clears throat> now, for us, we probably have never had like a life and death experience, right? Praise God, amen. So if I ask that question, you're like, well, I don't know. You heard Amy when she's so thankful to the Lord and Mike, they're so thankful to the Lord for what the Lord brought them out of. Well, I think in terms of Thanksgiving, every believer should have that same attitude. Every believer, independent of what our past was. Because we should be thankful that we were taken out of the grave and into life. But there always has to be this huge past in order for us to be like, seriously, thankful to the Lord. I had this conversation with a good friend of mine. Her parents are pastors. She's always served the Lord. And she says, you know, I don't have a testimony. I don't really have that wow factor. Whoa. And I thought the wow factor is that you've never left him. The wow factor is that he's been enough. That church is a praise. But how do you convey, how do you convey the story of the person that saved your life? Marcus Luttrell and his name might sound familiar, and if not, hold on. Marcus Luttrell, one of four Navy SEALs in 2005, he was part of Operation Red Wing in Afghanistan. He was a sniper and the team medic of a team that was sent to Afghanistan on a mission. He was severely injured in combat on the side of a mountain where all of his friends and fellow soldiers died. The only one left was Marcus Luttrell. Wounded, he was severely wounded, with a broken back, shrapnel, he fled, crawling more than seven miles to where he found a pool of water to where he was able to get some water and rest because the insurgents or the Taliban had ceased coming after him. He was found by the pool, Bleeding, a broken back, shrapnel in his leg, left half dead, almost no life, by a man by the name of Mohammed Gulab. Gulab found Luttrell. 
Luttrell was fearful because thinking this is the Taliban, Gulab says, no Taliban, no Taliban, friend. The story says that Gulab takes Luttrell, picks him up, and in order for you to pick someone up that's down, you must get down. Right? Do you agree? Follow the story. In order for you to help someone that is injured on the floor, you don't help like this because you're not going to be able to reach them. You have to go where they are. You have to meet them where they are. So, Gulab, Muhammad Gulab, goes to where Latrell is and he picks him up. He bandages the wounds. He carries him to the village, pulls out the shrapnel from his leg, he feeds him, he gives him shelter, and he nurses him back to life slowly but surely. The irony of all of this is you have a Navy SEAL in Afghanistan with what we would call the enemy. See, stories like this, to me, they're exciting. You heard Amy say that my husband retired after 21 years in the Army, and he has over 12 deployments in 10 years. So Chuck was all over the stands. So he understands this very, very well. An ancient village code in Afghanistan called Pushtanwali says that Mohammed Gulab must not only provide food and shelter to a wounded loner, ooh, hallelujah, but also must protect him from his enemies. An ancient, an ancient dictate, something that was written in their law. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, one man in a village still stood for what was decreed in life. And he finds the wounded loner and he nurses him back to life. Gulab's family was threatened daily by the Taliban. So much so that they had to man up with arms in order to protect Latrell. The Taliban, when they discovered that he was being housed in the village, the villagers had to take Latrell into neighboring caves just to save his life. So at night they would move him from cave to cave and they would stand watch in front of the cave while another nursed him all night long because they were bound to this law to save life. I'm going to let that sink in just for a second. The villagers had to fight the Taliban in order to save Latrell. The villagers put their life on the line for someone that they did not know. For someone that if outdoors we would look, would be enemies, right? Because many times we think of because of the war and things that are happening, other cultures as enemies. Well, Latrell was rescued. And some of you may know the story now when I tell you that it became a movie. And the movie is The Lone Survivor. Mm. Enemies by culture, enemies by religion, and enemies by war. The parable of the Good Samaritan bears some similarities with the life of Mohammed Gulab and Navy SEAL Latrell. Jerusalem, 
the city of God as it is called, situated high on a hilltop. Jericho, well, the inner city, the slum, located about 1,800 feet below the downward ravine. Incredibly dangerous, this stretch, full of thieves, murderers, criminals. Ironically, to this day, as I researched, that strip that connects both is very dangerous, very impoverished area, so very dangerous. When people are hiding and you're walking, there's no money. The country is suffering, and this is what they do. One man was brutally beaten. I mean, he was beaten. The Bible says that he was stripped of his clothes and he was left to die. Half dead. He was beaten. He was beaten. And I don't know, but when I think of Luttrell... It was only but by the grace of God that brought that soldier seven miles crawling to a place where there was life. He was left, this Jew, this man, he was beaten and he was left to die. He was stripped of his clothing, cold, his wounds probably evident. If he was bleeding, you can see it, especially if he was stripped of his clothes. Then we have some pass-byers, people that are going to pass by, people that are going to be looking, people that are just journeying. But I want to concentrate on the first one. Scripture says that the first one that came by was a priest, the highest religious authority of the day. Research says that there was only about 12,000 of them, so there were not that many of them. So they were like the highest creme of the creme in that area. The second one, a Levite. And this was a scholar of the law. This was like the highest subgroup under the priest. And the irony is that the Levites were called to serve the people. Okay? So I want you, we already know the two, right? Both of them did absolutely nothing. The priest, as he's walking by, quickly went to the other side. Because how many of you know that if we pretend to be blindsided to what we don't see, then we're not accountable. We pretend to not see the neighbor that's suffering. We pretend to not see the drug addict that's suffering. We pretend to not see that the homeless have no food and no home. We pretend. Pretending's not going to make it go away. It just helps us feel better. He passes on the other side. The Levite, now this one was interesting because at least this one, he came actually to look. I mean, he stood there a little bit. He came and he looked and then he crossed over to the other side. In bouncing the sermon off of my husband, he was sharing with me what the army does when they come across a casualty or when they come across someone that is injured. The very first thing that you check for is life. The very first thing that you check for is to make sure that they are breathing. Because they can be bleeding out. And it could already mean that life is no more. The very first thing is life. And in order, he said, for us to check on a combat scene if there's life, we must go down to where the person is. We must get very close to where the person is. So the Levite, he must have gotten at least a little close because the Bible says he came, he saw, and then he crossed over to the other side. But then here comes our third character. 
the Samaritan. But you know, ironically, the Bible also says, and I want you to look in Luke 10 31, that both the priest and the Levite were coming downward, which means that they were leaving Jerusalem, coming downward towards Jericho. A certain priest came down that road. The Levite also came down that road. And I said, wait a minute. If they were coming downward from the city that's here, downward to Jericho, then they were headed away from Jerusalem, which means two things, that they had just finished their religious duties and they were on their way home from church. They had just left the city on high. And as you're leaving, you come across someone that is hurting and you pass by on the other side. And I know that I know that I know that we too have done it on occasion. On a Sunday, we want to go eat. And it's great. And we want to fellowship with the brethren. And we want to love on each other. But I ask you today that from this day forward, you never, ever be the same when you go out to eat. I want you to look when you leave church for the person that is hurting with no life. Now you and I are not going to see someone on the floor, right? We'll dial 911. It's not always church, the physical ailment that's hurting the people that we befriend and that are around us. It's the spiritual, it's the mental, it's the hurts that are inside. I think that's why I love your t-shirt so much. On the back it says, straight out of church. Allow it to start a conversation with the hurting. We all have fallen, you and I, just because we're believers and we're here, nestled in a really nice, comfortable church, we're not exempt from things that can happen to us. The Bible says we all have fallen. We all have gone astray. We all have been hurt. We all have been stripped. We all have been mangled in life. I know I've had my struggles. I'm pretty sure you've had yours. But oh, for the blood of Jesus. But oh, for the blood of Jesus. John 10.10 says this. The thief comes and he will come. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But oh, I have come, says the word. God has come in his son Jesus that we may have what? Life. And if we're going to have life, and we're the ones that have it, then we should be the ones to give it. And now you're accountable. The Samaritan comes on the scene. And I want to be able to explain the Jewish social structure. So let's think about circles. A very small circle were the priests. Then the Levites, then the Jews, then the tax collectors, the outcasts, the sinners, then the Samaritans, the bottom of the barrel. That was their social structure. Forget you and me. We were like all the way at the bottom of the totem pole as Gentiles. But oh, for the blood of Jesus, we've been interwoven. Hallelujah. Sympathy is what you feel. Compassion is what you do. This was said by Dr. David Jeremiah. Tweet this. Sympathy is what you feel. 
compassion is what you do. I have to explain that there's a difference. Sympathy, we all feel bad. Oh, look at her. Oh, look at him. But you know, Jesus, Jesus wasn't sympathetic. And you're might thinking, oh, because you know, we hear that word, we send a sympathy card when someone passes away. And that's good. We should do that. But you know, my mom passed away August 2nd. And it was probably one of the most difficult things that I have ever had to endure, the passing of my mother. And as I was in the funeral, you received the sympathy cards and we were at the viewing. And as I looked up, I saw three of my colleagues from work that drove from North Carolina all the way to West Palm Beach, Florida. And then as I looked up again, I saw my boss who should have been on vacation with his family, but took a flight up to be with my husband and I and my family. Sympathy is what you feel. Compassion is what you do. Sympathy is what you feel. Compassion is what you do. As a church, we can't be sympathetic. Because it's just going to be a feeling, an emotion. And you know the feelings. Today I'm angry, tomorrow I'm happy. Today I can't stand you, tomorrow I love you. I can't feel, I have to do. Compassion is what moves you to act. So here we have the Good Samaritan. And it's funny because Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. They were rivals. You talk about the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, this was bad. This was worse. See, I got some of you up talking about football. They hated each other. They despised each other. The roots of bitterness, probably both didn't even know why. It happens today in our culture. We automatically, automatically, because of color, because of culture, because of finances, because of something we are not even privy to, we didn't even live and go through that, yet somehow the venom still spills over and we're hurting future generations. And so we hate and we separate ourselves and we don't even know why. But the Jew and the Samaritan, they hated each other. Yet the Samaritan, scripture says, is the one that stops. And there's eight points that I want to go quickly over so that you can see how he mirrors the master, at least to me. Eight things that the Samaritan does. Number one, he comes to where the helpless, injured man is. He came very close. And then he goes to where he is to make sure that there is life. You know what Jesus did? Jesus left heaven. Jesus left the comforts of heaven and he came to us. He left the glory of heaven to come to us all the way down to where we were to give us life. He has compassion on him. The Samaritan stops what he was doing. Where was he going? Was he on his way to work? Was he on his way home to see his family from work? Well, we don't know, but nothing else mattered. He stopped and he has compassion. 
Mark 6.34, Jesus is moved by our pain. Jesus is moved by what hurts us. He will stop everything. He will tell the angels in heaven, hush, because she's hurting and I need to hear. He will stop whatever needs to be stopped in order to reach me because he loves me. His actions. He bandages the wounded soul. He heals the brokenness of his body. Well, Psalms 147.3 says, the master does that for me. He heals my broken heart and he binds up my wounds. I love it. The good Samaritan not only sees is there still life and is he breathing, but he picks him up and he starts bandaging his wounds. Stop the bleeding. Give life. He pours oil and wine, the Bible says, on the wounds. Do you know that oil, especially olive oil, it was used in biblical times as a medicine more so. It softens the wound while it heals. But do you know that it was also very expensive? So you don't want to just use it on anything. I don't even know you. And I'm going to use a very expensive oil on you. And the Bible says he did. And then he takes the wine, which serves as an antiseptic to clean and to heal. All the wine is depicted as the blood of Jesus that is given to me. That was shed on Calvary's cross to heal my wounds, to take care of the infection that was eating my sinful body. But when the blood of Jesus was poured on me, the infection began to disappear because to whom much is forgiven, much is loved. And maybe I love him that way because a lot was forgiven. I hope that's the case for you. He set him on his animal, away from the dirt, away from the scum, away from the filth of the floor. He sits him on high because he's bringing him somewhere safe. Ephesians 2, 6, and God raised us up. He didn't leave us on the floor. He raised us up with Christ and he sits us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did not leave us on the floor where he found us. Jesus does not leave us fallen. He picks us up. He brushes us off. He heals our wounds. And he sets us on a place of authority. The triumphant groom is so excited to escort me as his bride. Yes. Yes. Triumphant Jesus entered Jerusalem also on his donkey. Yes. But he wasn't received with the grandeur and the splendor. Interesting enough, in the Korean culture, the groom enters the wedding riding on a donkey as a triumph for what he is about to embark in. So picking someone up and setting them on an animal that was not his or her own was considered a triumph in this culture. Jesus sets the stage for victory. I love what scripture says about what the Samaritan does. Not only does he brush him off, heal his wounds, set him on high, but he brings him to an inn or to a place where someone's going to take care of him. 
But you know, I've read this a hundred times as a child, a hundred times as a teen, as an adult, and it never hit me. Do you know that the Good Samaritan spent the night with the wounded warrior, the wounded loner? He stayed with him all night, watched over him, the Bible says. He did not leave him. He could have just brought him to the inn. I did enough. I did enough. I gave him, you know, some life back. He'll be good. But he did it. He stayed and he watched all night long. And then I think, as a teacher, and I want to take you into the classroom, let's look at this. What did he do during that time? Did he take a towel? And did he have a ball or a basin? And did he pour water and then squeeze out the towel and then lay it on his head and then do it again and again? Did the wounded loner have a fever? So did he stay up all night long? Did he hold him? Did he clean the wounds continuously? Did he change the bandage? Did he do all of this? Do you remember it? it? Was there ever a time in your sin or in your life where Jesus stayed by you all night long? It didn't even have to be in your sin. It could have been... When you had someone in the hospital and you were so scared and you didn't know if life was going to be or not, or if there was a car accident or something bad happened, and if you're thinking, oh, nothing of this has ever happened to me, praise God, hold on because it will. So take this as a nugget and prepare because the enemy of your soul doesn't want you to be happy. But you know where our counsel comes, church? That he's there. He stays all night long. And yes, there's sorrow. And yes, there are tears. But the Bible says that joy comes in the morning. He stays with you all night long and he doesn't leave you. And if the good Samaritan is just a glimpse of what Jesus does, and we are to model after the life of Jesus, are we giving life to people that are hurting the way that Jesus portrays it. You know why Jesus spoke in parables? So that everyone could understand. He didn't speak with this eloquent PhD level because some were not going to understand. So the objective was now that you understand and now that you know, you are accountable. Church, now that you know, you are accountable. This is a beautiful sanctuary. Praise God for the opportunity to have a live feed where people can see. Now that you know, you go out there and you find, and it's not hard. You don't even have to look for the one that's hurting. And you apply the points that Jesus applied for the person that's hurting. But something that's interesting The Good Samaritan paid the price. He pays two denarii to the innkeeper. And in biblical times, two denarii is the equivalent of two days wages for someone in agriculture. So someone that with his hands works the fields. And that's some hard work. You're not behind a desk and you're not on a Mac in an air-conditioned office. You are working the fields. Two days work. I don't know you. I'm going to give you the most expensive oil that I have. I'm going to house you and pay for you. Oh, that's a lot. I can't, I can't do all of that. I can't do all of that. We could only go but so far as the church. But oh, for the blood of Jesus. But oh, for the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice on Calvary's cross so that life could be given 
How do you convey to a person the story of the person that saved your life? How do you convey Jesus? How do we speak about life when we speak about Jesus, about his goodness, about what he's done, about what he's doing? That should be what we do. The question is, who do we convey that to? Believers? It's great, because I think in the fellowship, that's what you do. But from Samaritan to Samaritan, he would have had probably no writing in scripture about what he did. From Jew to Jew, probably wouldn't have been highlighted. Yet these are two opposites. Two people that have nothing in common. Two people that by definition should have hated each other. And yet, ironically enough, Christ is seen by the least of these that does the most of these. Whatever else is owed, the Samaritan says, I will repay on my return. And make no mistake, he will return. Not the good Samaritan, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh, he will return. And when he returns, what will he find? Because see, when he returns, all of us, well, we're going home. Oh, we're going home. And there'll be no more sickness, no more death, no more hurting, no more pain. And my house, I love a song that my kids used to listen to when we were little. When they were little, it would say, and a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. And a big, big table where we can eat and we can play. And we're looking forward to that in eternity, yes? But but are we looking forward? forward to that for us or when we get to see him face to face we can go like this come on and there'll be a following of the people that we reached or is it just about us I guess I'm so passionate because when I think of Royal Home Ministries the little girls that we service they had no biblical upbringing they had no role models And what they were destitute to and what has occurred to them is a direct result of not having an intervention. (laughs) Now, we're not playing the blame game. You take responsibility for what you've done. And I wonder, the loner that was severely beaten, didn't he know better than to be walking around in Jericho at night? Didn't he know better than to be there by himself during those hours? Did it matter to the Good Samaritan why he was there? What was he doing there? Does it matter to us why the sinner does what they do? Why a 13-year-old gets pregnant? Do you know that sometimes it wasn't because it was consensual? Because she was hurt. But she chose life anyway? That should be your concern and mine. And what about the drug addict? Why does he get high? Why does he do the things he does? Why is she stealing? Do you know that something might or might not happen that was so deep there was no safe haven because there wasn't a good Samaritan to pick her up, to pick him up, to bandage him up, to apply oil, to put him on high, to take him to a safe place? But we are here now. But you and I are here now. And from this moment forward, you and I are accountable. We're accountable to the hurting We're accountable to the destitute. We're accountable to everyone, whether it's in or out of our culture. We're accountable. The Lord has given us the great commission to go and preach life. The life that Jesus gave us is the life that we must convey. And as the praise and worship team comes, and as everyone stands, 
I want us to just take a really quick moment. We won't prolong it anymore. But Jesus has left the Holy Spirit with us to take care of us. I love it. The Good Samaritan tells the innkeeper, you take care of him and I'll be back. Jesus has left the Holy Spirit with us and he said, you take care of the church because I'll be back. And for us, he's coming back. And that's our truth. He's coming back. But I want us to be mindful this morning. And I want us to be ever so in prayer. Lord, we're waiting and we want you to come back. Oh, Father God, I want you to come back. But Father, I pray that when you come back, you might find me to have been the Good Samaritan. Oh, Father God, that when I enter heaven, I don't enter by myself. Yes, my husband and my children, amen. Oh, but Father, please, I pray that you allow me to enter with a host of people following me that knew you because I gave life. See, you could only give what you have, right? And we have life. And we have life eternal. So as our praise and worship team sings, I want you to listen to this song. And if you don't know this life eternal Jesus, if you're here for the very first time, and what I'm speaking has hit home, And sometimes you feel like that loner, like that wounded loner. You're not alone because it's been me and it's been many that are here. Joyce Meyer says something so wonderful. You might see the glory today, but you don't know my story. And there was a time when I was a wounded loner. But, as your pastor says, after that but, it's explosive. But! By the grace of God, I have life because someone stopped, picked me up, bandaged my wounds, placed some oil where the healing started, gave me the blood of Jesus to where all my wounds and the infection was cleared, set me on high, paid the price, and it's coming back for me. So if this is you, I want you to come. Our prayer is that God will take this word and plant good eternal seeds deep into your soul. Father, we pray for your great wisdom to infiltrate this listener, draw them to you, and take them gently down the road to their next destination in life. And if you're in need of a home church, we invite you to join us at Christian Heritage Church on Shera Road in Tallahassee, Florida. A multicultural church founded on the truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. For a worship service where the presence of God has first place, you're invited to Christian Heritage Church. Sunday morning service is at 10.30, Wednesday evening at 7, plus youth group and kid power and small groups and more. For all the latest information, visit our website, chctoday.com.